Lives a Fork. I'm Jess. And I'm Nina. And we're roaming the world, exploring food and the stories behind it. Enjoy! Hello, welcome back. Welcome to the first Who Gives a Fork of 2019. Yeah, 2019. Woo, we're here. <laughs> um, so uh, me and Jez are at the Oxford Real Farming Conference today. Um, it's been a while since we've been on your airwaves. We've had quite an interesting few months. Things have changed, haven't they? We've, um, I've relocated to Devon. I now work for Riverford, which is a organic veg box company. And I'm uh, editing a new magazine now called Wicked Leaks. Which is going to be all about sustainability, basically, yep. isn't it? An ethical um, business. Yep. And um, Jez is a highly successful freelance journalist and a pro salsa dancer uh. based in Norwich. <laughs> With my own salsa shoes. With our own salsa yep. shoes. <laughs> and a free slot for Strictly next year. Yes, so, um, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so what have your highlights been, Jez, for today? Been in 20 good sessions? Yes, I think I think the, the best one, is an issue I'm really interested in at the moment, it was a session on veganism mm. and kind of where we are with that at the moment and it was an interesting panel a couple of people who were um, vegans themselves and then a couple of people who um, are farmers actually or sort of land managers and who were kind of arguing for more of a holistic approach to it but I I mean I think the interesting thing was that you know it has become a really polarized debate over the last couple of years um, with a lot of finger pointing and blaming and all sorts of misinformation flying around as well um, and this was a really good balance session mm. with interesting questions from the floor. Yeah. And it was good to see like a real mix of people, mix of opinions, and everyone being very like civilised yeah. as well. I mean, it does polarise people, doesn't it? That's that thing with veganism. Yeah. But I thought it was quite nuanced mm. and people like had you know good um you know insightful things to say mm. um and what was what was your highlight then um, today? yeah that was great that was probably a really that was a very engaged session i went to another good one on plastic um that was again quite forward thinking so i think we're kind of past the point of saying that plastic is bad now so this was more about talking about what kind of materials you can um use instead of plastic and um using a bit of context like you know don't let plastic deflect from climate change is the biggest issue um so yeah, it wasn't kind of preachy at all. It was just interesting, lots of good comments. Um, yeah, it was good. And then we saw Gove. Yeah, Gove, Gove being Gove. interviewed by Kerry uh, McCarthy, who's former uh, DEFRA shadow secretary. Um, and that was, yeah, that was an interesting one. I mean, yeah. we were saying, weren't we, that he's very, he's very slick. Mm. He always tweaks his, uh, his approach slightly differently depending on his audience. So mm. he's very good at that. He just spits out facts like anything um but really you know she challenged him on the fact that there's like no detail really in the agricultural bill like there's you know and and he kind of uh well yeah he sort of managed to to, well he was trying to justify it and you know there was some heckling wasn't there yeah and saying actually detail is really important to make sure that the government is held to account and actually delivers on all these things definitely he's an impressive speaker um it's very difficult to kind of a kind of just compute what he's saying because it's quite frustrating but you know it's good that he's engaging and he, the fact that he's here and this is a conference just about you know sustainable sustainable food isn't it yeah um, absolutely so it's good that he was here and he yeah. gave you know it was about an hour i think that he mm. was here so yeah it was good packed yeah and we have just um spoken to um guy sing watson who was the uh well the, the founder and now the co-owner of riverford mm-hmm. you know he's got a good 
kind of stance on you know having you know the fact that you know farming is a is a business and you've got to be able to have a pragmatic view on it it's got to work financially um as well as obviously the environmental side of it um which i think is an interesting point that's what we were interested in because it's easy to have this idealistic view of sustainability and you know all aiming for this ideal world but you know you've really got to think about the people that are running your food businesses because they've got people to support and how viable is it and so we, we just had a chat with him about that really and um here it is We stood in what sounds we've decided a bit like a toilet, yeah. um, which is actually Oxford Town Hall at the um, Oxfordville Farming Conference. Yeah, with Guy Watson. Guy Singh Watson. Guy Singh Watson. <laughs> okay, apologies. <laughs> um, owner and founder of Riverford Organics. Yeah. No longer owner. Oh, getting <laughs> yeah. it all wrong today. Oh, yeah. you've passed over ownership to yeah, yeah it's owned by staff now. Yeah, yeah, which is very cool. The co-owner. Yeah, co-owner. Yes. Oh, I'm a co-owner. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, co-owner now. Um, and we thought we'd kick off by asking you a few kind of quick-fire questions on sustainability. Pick your brains a little bit. Yeah. So we wanted to sort of talk about the how possible is it for sustainable food to become mainstream because we're here at the Oxford Real Farming Conference which takes place on the same day as another farming conference where traditionally the big farming businesses go um, and I just think like is it how can we how can we turn sustainable food into a mainstream thing is that is that even possible or do you think it's going to be sort of a not a fringe thing but how can we make it more accessible and make this kind of you know, something like organic food or sustainably sourced food how is that is that ever going to be um, a mainstream reality um, from an economic sort of perspective yeah possibly not in my lifetime but I am getting on a bit <laughs> but I think it does though it may not in itself become ma- mainstream I think the influence of the organic and um, agroecology and so on 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 uh, mainstream farming is becoming huge actually mm. I mean I, I haven't been this year but last year there was a lot of discussion about soil health and what mm. that meant at the other farming conference which would have been unheard of 10 years ago people are starting to talk about the you know the soil uh, fauna and flora you know mycorrhizal fungi and, and and so on in a way that you know the people would have just never spoken mm. about 10 or even five yeah. years ago so I, I do find that very heartening and I think the impact I don't know it's say it's only two percent of the market or farmed area in the UK but the influence on conventional agriculture has been far greater than that two percent and I, I do think it's conceivable that or I see the signs anyway that conventional non-organic agriculture is moving in a more environmentally benign I don't really like to use the word sustainable because it's far from sustainable, but it's moving in a, in a better direction as farmers take back a little bit of control from the um, agrochemical companies who have been their main sources of information for the last 50 or 60 years, you know, ever since we came out of the Second World War and food rationing ended. Mm. What about the um, accessibility of things like organic food and food that is more ethically sourced and has this sort of um, supply chain which supports farmers and has a different way of um, running a business or you know has that sort of fair um, way of trading how, how can that food ever be accessible to people who are on a very different income you know you've got well you know organic food certainly organic vegetables as they leave the farm you know are affordably priced I mean the problem is that everyone marks them up to the stage where they may be I don't know 30 percent or 50 percent 
more expensive when they're, they're bought in a supermarket and some people do find that um, prohibitively expensive. Sustainably produced food is always going to be more expensive until the day when all the external costs of water pollution and so on and um, soil loss are carried instead of being carried by the taxpayer or actually being carried by future generations are, are carried by the people who are producing, who are responsible for them today and, and uh, I'm sorry but I just can't see any uh, realistic hope of, of those externalities being brought back to where they you know, should be paid for by the mm. farmers and that means that organic and sustainably produced food is always is going to be more expensive mm. and I I've spent 32 years struggling with that and the consequence being that you know many of our customers tend to be um, more wealthy than average I, you know I, it warms you know me to the cockles of my heart when I meet one of our customers who do tell me you know how you know who live on an estate and on benefits but who have made the decision that they are going to spend that bit more on their food and they say how oh, it's changed their lives and their families' lives and, and they have that respect for what they put in in their mouths and that Riverford's been part of that, you know, I find it just immensely heartening. But I'm not gonna pretend that they're <laughs> anything mm. other than a tiny minority. Um, What's the solution then, Guy? Do you think it's a legislative one? In part, yes. I, I, I do think, um, you know, I think there probably should be a, a nitrogen tax. Perhaps there should be a pesticide um, tax. I think there should be more rigorous environmental legislation uh, that makes that sort of farming, you know, harder to do. But that, that would be very hard on UK farmers where you know, in all likelihood, we're going to end up importing food from areas in the world that don't have such rigid uh, legislation. And, and, you know, so that really penalises UK farmers. So it's, it's not an easy one. And I, I'm afraid I don't think it's going to get any easier outside the EU, despite Michael Gove's fine words, uh, which I did actually write down his promise that there would be no erosion of animal welfare or environmental rights. I wrote it down word to word. Um, I, I find it very hard to imagine how he is going to maintain that when there is a trade negotiation about financial services with the US or something, mm. and in return they want us to buy you know, milk produced with bovine somatotrophin or beef produced with the help of hormones or the chlorine washed chickens or GM or you know, all, yeah, the other things which are legal within, in the US. Do you feel like there's some, like a, an ideal of, um, I feel like you come to these conferences and there's an ideal that everyone seems to be striving for, for like true sustainability and we're going to have to do this, this and this. And is that, is that achievable? Is that something that we should be even aiming for? I mean, you mentioned well, already today that the idea of pragmatic sustainability. Well, actually, what I do love about this conference is that there, there are a lot of idealists here. Probably most of us are fundamentally. But I think, you know, they're people who just want to do what they can do today. Mm. They don't want to sit there and moan about how they would like it to be, you know, in 10 years' time. They want to do what they can to make the world a better place today in the world that they find themselves living in. And, you know, I think that's commendable. There is always a place for the dreamers and the idealists, you know, to, you know, show how it could be and probably should be. Um, but I think there's also a place for the sort of pragmatists who get on and make the best of it. Is as that they what you see yourself it. then? It is really, yeah. And I and I and I don't in any way sometimes I get a little bit frustrated by the starry eyed idealists, but I think they also have a very important um, role to play. But um, yeah, but Riverford is about making the most of it. 
producing the best, most sustainable food, you know, least environmental damage, best animal welfare that we can in the world as we find it. I mean, do you think sometimes we can get lost in ideology and um, and sort of lose a grip of what what are the, the practical and economic realities of a situation? Uh, as a nation, no. I think we're very <laughs> fearful and um, uh, embarrassed to speak in ideological or philosophical terms, and um, I also often find that a little bit I find it a little bit constraining, actually, that we all have to be so. Um, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with the occasional flight of fantasy, and I don't think people should be embarrassed about that. And so, uh, you know, something I respect, even love about the French, actually, you know, is that they are much more prone to do that. And and I think, oh, we just sort of weight ourselves down with sort of practicality. I think as a nation, somehow, I, you know, there's nothing wrong with a bit of imagination. I don't think. You were talking about it in terms of, um, earlier we mentioned it in terms of veganism in particular and the idea of having a very polarised debate around that and mm. in ideology in the sense that you know, it would be so much better if no one ate animals and that kind of creates a very extreme picture for people, doesn't it? Yeah, sort of thinking that you know, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of the organisations or people, groups, whatever, who are talking about food a lot and who are looking at how to make food more sustainable... Mm and how it can be changed and that kind of thing don't always I think have a practical uh, understanding of it but they, they don't necessarily always go out and meet with farmers and on, on the other side of the of the debate perhaps farmers and food producers who don't necessarily listen to the, that kind of I'm yeah. talking about the sort of metropolitan elite who's maybe very idealistic but doesn't necessarily understand the that practicality. So, yeah, so um, how do we sort of, I don't know, bring, bring those two sides together yeah, really into yeah. something that is idealistic and progressive but also I takes account of reality? I do think the, the kind of propensity that certain people have, <laughs> metropolitan elite probably in particular, to kind of romanticise, but I would actually say patronise those who work on the land, I, I, I don't think it's helpful, actually. I mean, we are not, you know, peasants, you know, organic farm, we're not all sort of peasants paddling around in our sandals, you know. I mean, you know, we have the same aspirations. Actually, we quite like to go on holiday ourselves sometimes, <laughs> yes, and we don't nice. really, you know, <laughs> like having, you know, ten pounds of mud attached to each bit of the boot. It's just what we we, we kind of have to do to get the job done. I don't, I don't, it's, um, I don't know, this, this kind of bucolic idyll or something that, mm -hmm. that, that, that we are supposed to exist in, uh, is, which is at the heart of so much food marketing, uh, which is just massively, you know, there's a, just a gulf between that and reality. Uh, and, and what we need to do is develop a bit of reality in the middle, you know, where people can actually realistically live and produce food in a humanly sustainable and an economically sustainable way. Could organic farming feed Britain, theoretically? What's, well, what's the realities of it in terms of yields okay. and economic viability? Is that something that you see as possible? Actually, I do. I think we would probably have to just, we certainly have to be vegetarian, probably virtually vegan in order to achieve that. If we, if we did that and we got rid of food waste and we, or massively reduced food waste and we invested in, uh, in some of the more progressive 
techniques of food production of mixed cropping and so on uh, and embraced some of the new technologies coming along with robots and so on swarm robots to weed our crops I can I, I, I think that's yeah I do think it's achievable so actually. once you've got rid of things like you know labor costs obviously a big a big thing well, in know, terms of the actual growing technique that's currently yeah I mean currently 0.7 percent of GDP actually goes back to the farm you know we spend roughly 10 percent of GDP on food, but only 0.7% goes back to the farmers. Now, clearly, uh, you know, we're not, we can't produce food. I mean, that implies that, uh, you know, one farmer, if we all got paid the same, which we don't, of course, but if we did, one farmer would have to feed 130 people. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, that's not going to happen without Mm. quite a lot of uh, mechanisation. So we're not going to go back to, um, you know, peasant-style agriculture. It's, you know, unless we want to spend 30% of our... GDP on food is just not going to happen. So, uh, so the the but I do think through you know embracing you know technologies like GPS guided vehicles in the fields, you know pinpoint accuracy, um, you know robots that can recognise weeds and electrocute them. I think really the most exciting thing for me is that you can then uh, mix crops up instead of having to plant monocrops, you know, in order to um, f- facilitate efficient harvesting and planting and weeding, you could then plant them in mixtures, and mixtures are inherently uh, more ecologically stable. They require fewer inputs to control um, disease uh, and are potentially higher yielding. So, you know, that is, um, you know, I think really exciting that that it could be a, you know, a, know, a, a massive change in direction from ever bigger fields, ever bigger machines, ever larger areas of genetically uniform you know monocrops back to something which much more closely mimics nature but is sorry i shouldn't say back to something i should say forward to Mm. something which closely mimics nature but is also hugely you know productive Mm. i mean you know a lot of land is is bare a lot of the time or it's got a tiny little seedling in it i mean that's that is an anathema to nature you know the ground is always covered you know you know, once in a hundred years a tree falls over and for six months or probably not even that, there's a bit of soil, but that's about the only time, you know, you see it in nature. It's a very rare thing, yet we create a whole countryside, you know, that's bare for large parts of the year and that brings a whole load of problems. It's starting to look more and more crazy as well, isn't it, when you get, you know, the extreme weather you see all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. You can just see how that would wipe out an entire thing if it's more diverse, you've got yeah. more resilience. Well, where next for Riverford then? How are you going to deal with challenges like climate change and things like that? Um, yeah, well, the, the, the big challenge for us with climate change is not that it's getting warmer, it's that it's getting less predictable. Um, so more extreme weather events, you know, I don't know, I mean, in my 30 plus years of, well, I mean, so 50 years of farming, but, you know, you kind of knew what to expect. I might be viewing the past with rose-tinted spectacles, but now it's just like... You know, I'm cutting artichokes in January, um, um, but November it was so wet that the kale is wilting because the soil was waterlogged. I mean, that just seems weird to me, but it may be that we're all attributing everything to climate change. It's hard, hard to sort out what's weather and what's climate change. But it is, yeah, so dealing with, um, I, I, you know, trying to deal with, uh, grow our vegetables in ways which leaves the soil less exposed so hopefully you know maybe more perennial vegetables uh, maybe more intercropping of vegetables uh, and, and certainly less cultivation of the soil is something that we're aspiring to and, and as a business 
you know, I'm really excited about becoming employee owned and everyone taking responsibility for their actions, which in a game, you know, in a way that is a kind of, you know, mimics nature in the, in the, it will, it will enable us to be a much more complex and diverse organization doing lots of different things because people will be thinking for themselves, you know, rather than this kind of monolithic, incredibly clumsy, old-fashioned organization where the person at the top tells everyone else what to do. You know, I find that really exciting and, and uh, I think it puts us in a much better place to, you know, face the challenges ahead, climate change and others, climate change and Michael Gove. <laughs> 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 we'll leave it on that note. All right. You've been listening to Who Gives a Fork? Brought to you by me, Nina, and me, Jez. Keep listening as we travel the world and visit farms, plantations, and food producers. See you next time.